Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today, for episode 260, longtime Bitcoin Core developer Luke Dasher joins me on the show. I wanted to get a range of opinions just to give listeners a range of thought and give them an exposure to some of the different ways of thinking in the Bitcoin world. And so we're going to talk with Luke and get his views on how SegWit and UASF, user-activated soft fork, played out and what he thinks about how upgrades should happen on the network and what are the risks and how to mitigate those risks. And then we get into Taproot, obviously, and talk about his thoughts around why lock-in on timeout should be set to true and some of the various arguments in and around this in terms of what are the risks of a chain split and so on, what what, what do we do in terms of miners signaling and so on, uh, as well as talk about his thoughts on speedy trial and small blocks. So if anyone hasn't already listened, make sure you listen to episode 257 with Matt Corallo, uh, as that will provide some of the necessary background and contrasting viewpoint to this episode. This show is brought to you by the sponsors. CoinKite.com are the creators of my favorite hardware wallet, the Cold Card. Now, this is a great choice for those of you in terms of starting out with single signature, and it also works excellently as part of a multi-signature setup. And the cool thing with this wallet is you can use it completely air-gapped. You can use a micro SD card and initialize that wallet and then shuttle it over to popular wallets like Spectre or Electrum or Sparrow or Blue Wallet. Cold Card supports the latest Bitcoin technology and makes full use of PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions. And there's a range of features like a duress pin or a brick me pin, support for BIP85 to generate child seeds off your main seed. There's a range of products all available at coinkite.com. Go and use the code Levera and you'll get a discount. Lend at HodlHodl is a non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform allowing you to do peer-to-peer lending or borrowing globally and anonymously. So if you have stable coins like Liquid USDT, you can earn attractive returns. HodlHodl's lending allows people to earn 25% APR on average, one of the highest in the market. Also, if you have Bitcoin and you don't want to sell it, there's an option now to get fiat stablecoin liquidity. You can collateralize those Bitcoins without necessarily trusting one party. It's a two of three multi-sig, so that Bitcoin collateral always remains locked in escrow. Lend at HodlHodl is a Bitcoin DeFi, allowing peer-to-peer lending and borrowing directly between its users. You set your own terms and put up offers, depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Compass is an online marketplace, making it easier for everyone to mine Bitcoin and enhance the Bitcoin network's security. So this is not cloud mining. Go and check out my recent episode 259 with Whit Gibbs, where we spoke about the process of how Compass enables you to buy your own ASIC and secure hosting at great facilities around the world. They can help facilitate this for you and make that opaque market a little bit easier and more accessible for the every everyday person so you can tap into the economies of scale there so compass offers hardware and hosting bundles eliminating the need for advanced technical knowledge go visit them at compassmining.io and start mining bitcoin today luke welcome to the show thanks so luke uh for listeners who are unfamiliar maybe you could just give take a minute and uh, just tell us a little bit about your background and how long you've been developing and uh, contributing with bitcoin core i first learned about bitcoin back at the end of 2010 it was a new year's party and i've been contributing since about a week later so i recently got past the decade mark (laughs) 
Very cool. So uh, I know you have uh, done a lot of different things in the Bitcoin world and I know you have different projects running. So one of them is Knots as well. So can you tell us a little bit about that also? Bitcoin Knots is pretty much a product of the same development process that creates Bitcoin Core, but it doesn't have as onerous the uh, review requirements for things to be merged. And it also preserves some features that have been removed from the mainline core, such as uh, the transaction priority, coin age, and all that. Okay, great. And um, I, I, I know you uh, have been developing in Bitcoin Core for a while, and there are certain things that uh, have you've helped uh, pr- progress some of those forward. And I think it was your... Uh, I believe it was your suggestion that uh, enabled SegWit to be done as a soft fork as well. So maybe it'd be good now to also just dive into some of the different views on how SegWit got activated. Because I think looking back now, there are different, perhaps different visions of how exactly SegWit was activated in the Bitcoin network back, looking back to 2017. So perhaps uh, if you want to maybe set the scene in terms of how you viewed the lead up to 2017, as I understand, there were multiple attempts to raise the block uh, size at, you know, at that time it was XT and Unlimited and a few others. Can you maybe spell out for us your view on what that looked like leading up to 2017? I mean, there were a lot of people who wanted to increase the block size, mainly as a um, PR stunt to say Bitcoin can handle so many more transactions. There was a lot of reason not to do that. And at the end of the day, when we got SegWit made up for as a soft fork, a block size increase was included in that as sort of a compromise with the big block faction, so to speak, pretty much doubling the effective block size that Bitcoin blocks can be. For whatever reason, they didn't like that. They wanted to have more, I guess they wanted to take control over the protocol rules away from the community. And so they pushed forward with trying to do a hard fork despite that. And so the view at that time is those people who are more in the, let's call it small block camp, or even in the, let's just keep things the way they are and not change it too much. They, some of them viewed that as an attack, correct? Yeah. And, but SegWit was pretty widely accepted as a compromise between the big blockers and the small blockers because SegWit not only increased the block size, it also enabled Lightning to be a lot more effective and secure. And that hopefully will eventually help reduce the block sizes significantly. Yeah, I see. And so by fixing some of the different bugs and, for example, transaction malleability and uh, setting up the setting up the possibility for lightning and so on it was viewed like that would be the way forward uh, but obviously in the community there are now it seems that there are somewhat different views on how exactly segwit was activated so could you perhaps tell us the story from your perspective how do you believe uh, segwit was activated in that time in 2017 i know there were various attempts and different bips and proposals made uh, initially, we had configured SegWit's activation to be done with the BIP9 version bits, which was an upgrade over the the previous model. Had to simply use the version number as an integer, and each version, each new feature, we'd increment it, and then all the eventually the old version number would become invalid, and all the blocks had to be upgraded. So version bits, the idea was we can just temporarily assign each of the bits for the activation and then once activation's over we stop using it and that way we can have up to 20 some soft forks activating in parallel which at this point seems like 
why would we ever have more than one? But at the time, things were speeding up and it looked like that was going to become a possible issue that we want to have multiple in progress at the time. So Tegwit used this, and because of the whole big block controversy, it turned out, and there may have been other motives in the middle there, but it turns out the miners decided they were going to, instead of coordinating that upgrade, actually just refuse to coordinate it and effectively stop the upgrade in its tracks. Um, it was never intended to be a way for miners to make decisions about the protocol. The community had already decided SegWit was going to happen. Otherwise, you don't deploy an activation at all. But in any case, the fact that it was relying on the miners to coordinate it meant the miners were able to effectively prevent it. And so BIP9 at that point pretty much failed. So a anonymous developer named Sherilyn Fry proposed that we'll just fix this by making the signal, it's no longer optional. The miners have to at least no later than a certain date send the signal or their blocks wouldn't be valid. Um, and this meant basically close the loophole that miners could refuse to coordinate instead of they, they don't, they still had the uh, coordination involved, but if they didn't coordinate at the end of the day, it would still activate anyway. Yeah. Okay. And so that was BIP 148. Um, at one point it was found that due to some, Due to a bug in BIP9, it would have to be moved forward and ended up being moved to August 1st. It was very rushed and somewhat risky because of the time frame. It was only uh, three to five months, depending on when you first heard about it. Yep. And very controversial, obviously, but it pulled it off at the end of the day without any issues at all. Despite, right. <laughs> despite everything it had going against it, it still was a complete success. I see. Yeah. And uh, could you also outline what BIP-91 is and any impact that had there? BIP-91, to put be frank, was essentially a 51% attack the miners collaborated on against the network. The only reason it was acceptable at all was because it was, in effect, the miners complying with BIP-148. Interesting. Okay. And so... BIP-91 was effectively a way that the miners could say... Winding it back a little... Yeah, we activated SegWit, even though they didn't really have a choice at that point. <laughs> you know, BIP-148 was just a day or two later. I see. Yeah. And so this uh, also, I guess, calling back to my recent episode with Matt Corella, we were talking about this idea of so-called playing chicken with the network. And so I guess that's one of the concerns that people had that there could potentially be a split caused in the network. And this is why the idea is you want the miners to come along to help enforce that rule. And so I guess this comes into the topic of what we call forced signaling. And I think that's essentially what um, BIP 148 was helping achieve because it was basically saying all of the nodes who are running this version are essentially saying, if you do not signal for SegWit, we will not recognize your blocks as valid, right? Yeah, I mean, that was a that's a framing that revolves around BIP 148 and the events of that time. It doesn't really apply to the current situation where all the miners are friendly, hopefully going to just activate it anyway. Of course, right, right. Yeah, so we'll get to the taproot stuff, but I just wanted to sort of get your view on the SegWit stuff in the sense that, you know, for us to... I don't know that I would portray it as a game of chicken, though. Um, the, the note users pretty much said SegWit is going to be activated. That's how it is. <laughs> um, that's not going to necessarily cause a network split. The network only splits if miners violate these new rules that the users have decided to enforce. 
I see. Yeah. So I guess the and I I personally I'm I'm kind of more in the camp of you know UASF myself, but I, I guess the counter argument would be something like, well, see, even if all you UASF nodes go off and create your own Bitcoin network, you might not have the same level of hash power and therefore not the same level of security. Or it, maybe even at the start, you might not get that many blocks coming through because you're just not getting. Uh, because the difficulty hadn't adjust, wouldn't not have adjusted back down, right? Well, how would you think about that, or do you, do, would you disagree with that? Well, that's implying I completely disagree with the premise that UASF splits off at all. I mean, it's just an, one more rule that the blocks have to follow to be enforced. The miners can violate that rule, but they could violate that rule t- tomorrow if they wanted to. They could violate another rule. If the miners decide to violate rules, that's just the miners splitting the network. That has nothing to do with the actual UASF. I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then moving on in, in the events in 2017, could you... Spell out your thoughts on how you viewed the SegWit2x uh, aspect. So that was later in the year, post-SegWit being activated. I guess the for listeners who are unfamiliar, it was seen... Okay, so I get... That was right before BIP91, which was a few days before BIP148 activated. They saw that essentially SegWit was going to happen, the UASF was going to work, so they decided they were going to tack on their hard fork as a after effect, or try to anyway. Obviously, Bitcoin doesn't work like that. You can't just force users to do something. <laughs> so it was complete failure. Yeah, of course, of course. And so in your view, was it important that, as as for example, Bitfinex had a B1X token and there was a B2X token to represent in some sense, a futures market of what people viewed the value of Bitcoin versus the Segwit2x coin, which never actually eventuated. But the fact that at that time, it was something like nine to one in favor of Bitcoin uh, over the Segwit2x coin of which one was the true Bitcoin. So in your view, was that significant? Did that matter at all? Or did that just not really matter at all? I mean, at the end of the day, it would have had the same outcome. I'm not going to say it didn't matter at all. Obviously, it helped get us there quicker (laughs) it made it clear before the fact that it wasn't going anywhere which i guess that caused them to give up early but at the end of the day the users are the final rule on what the protocol is so it's not like it would have succeeded without a futures market involved of course and i think another important topic to bring up here at this point is the concept of economic majority. So it's one thing for people to, let's say, spin up a node, and if they are not actually transacting, if they are not receiving Bitcoin, and then in that act of receiving Bitcoin and saying, yes, I recognize this as valid Bitcoins, or no, these are not valid Bitcoins, in that act, they are helping, in some sense, influence the rules of the network. And so I guess the argument from the people who believe that it was not UASF that did it might say, well, okay, that might have been a few people on Twitter and therefore they were not actually the economic majority. The economic majority would have been actors like Coinbase and other big exchanges. What would you say to that sort of line of thinking? It's kind of history revisionism. Although I want to point out that the exchanges really they have to do what their customers want. They're not really the economic actors. The economic actors are the people who are offering services or products for the Bitcoins. Um, you have to be able to, when you receive the alleged Bitcoins, if they're not valid, you have to be able to say, no, I'm not going to give you a product or no, I'm not going to give you a service. Otherwise, you know, you're not really enforcing anything. 
I see. Yeah. And so perhaps the counter argument, and again, I'm, I'm more on your side, right? But just for the sake of kind of talking it out and thinking about it, what would it look like if a lot of users are, let's say they are naive or they do not understand this aspect of it, and maybe they're not as engaged in the conversation around what Bitcoin is and thinking about the technical ramifications of what's going on. They are just an everyday user and they just see on their wallet or on their front end, whether that's Coinbase or some other front end, that they see, oh, I've received you know, Segwit2x coin and I think that that's Bitcoin. What about that idea? That's a scenario where Bitcoin has failed. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so then, uh, but nevertheless, go on. Bitcoin only works because of de- decentralized enforcement. If it's centralized enforcement, you may as well go back to you know PayPal because that's all you have. It, except it's more expensive than PayPal because it's inefficient. <laughs> it's trying to simulate decentralization without actually having decentralization at that point. I see. Yeah, and I, absolutely, it's important that you know people uh, take that on and actually treat Bitcoin seriously and try to learn about it and be a more active engaged in how they use Bitcoin. Uh, But I guess it's also, there are a lot of people out there who maybe they are only on a mobile phone, or maybe they are not very technically savvy. Uh, What's to be said for those users or potentially, and I know you might not uh, agree with this, but for the people who are lightweight client users? Well, hopefully there's an economic minority at all times. Bitcoin just doesn't work if the majority isn't enforcing the rules. Nobody else is going to do it for him. I see. Yeah. And in your view, then, is it not feasible, let's say, that there would be enough users who might, say, call out a service and say, hey, they're not actually valid. They're not properly, they're not giving me real Bitcoins. And then maybe everyone stops using that service. And then people go to some other service that is using you know, true Bitcoin, quote unquote. I would hope that would occur. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I would imagine if any exchange tried to pass off fake Bitcoins, then they would probably get a class action lawsuit. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we would hope to see. Right. Uh, and I guess the worst case would be every, like nobody can natively interact with Bitcoin or very few can natively interact with Bitcoin. And then we end up in this scenario where people are essentially all having to trust somebody else. And obviously that's very antithetical to the idea and the very notion of Bitcoin. I also wonder as well, is there a questionnaire around some nodes being more important than others in some sense? Because some actors might, let's say, hold more coins, they might be more interested in it, and they might be the ones, in some sense, defending the rule set of the network in a loose sense. Do you understand? Do you get what I'm saying there? Right. Yeah, that's back to the economic majority. Is The economic activity being used, using your node to validate is eventually the weight of your node on the network enforcement. If your node doesn't validate any transactions that people are using in real economic activity, then to be frank, that node is not doing any enforcement at all. If your node is verifying, you know, if you're selling products every day for Bitcoins, then you've got a lot of a lot of push compared to someone who's only selling a thing maybe once in a while. Yeah, yeah. So more active users and ideally people who are using it to receive Bitcoins, they're the ones who are in some sense enforcing the rules, as you're saying. And of course, people who have the Bitcoins and are willing to spend it also get to choose who is receiving the most. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right there. Okay, so are there any other points around SegWit and 2017 that you wanted to touch on? Mm Mm-hmm. It's okay if you do, if if not. I just wanted to kind of make sure you had your chance to, I guess, say your view. Yeah, I'm just trying to link it through. I'm not sure there was too much else. 
Okay, great. So let's move on then to Taproot now. And so we've got this new soft fork that most people want. It's There's been no serious sustained objections to it. Can you spell out your thoughts on the discussion on how Taproot activation has gone so far? Uh, we had, I guess it was three, maybe four meetings a few month or two ago. Um, turnout wasn't that great. Only maybe 100 people or so showed up for them. But at the end of the day, we came to consensus on pretty much everything except for the one lock and untimeout parameter. Since then, a bunch of people have started throwing out completely new ideas, which, you know, it's great to discuss them, but I think they should be saved for the next soft fork. Already got a near consensus on taproot activation. Might as well just go forward with that. There's not consensus on the lock and untimeout, but there's enough community support to enforce it. I think we should just move forward with that how it is and just we can do something different next time maybe if there's a better idea that comes around. But right now that is the least risky option on the table. Okay. And so with the lock-in on timeout discussion, there's been a lot of discussion back and forth about true or false or other ideas uh, proposed such as, you know, just straight flag day activation or this other idea of speedy trial. Could you just outline some of the differences there between those different approaches? The lock-in timeout true is essentially what we ended up having to do with SegWit. It gives full year of minor that the miners can collaborate to cooperatively protect the network while it's being activated early. And if the miners don't do that for whatever reason, at the end it activates. Um, if you if we were to set lock and untime out to false, then we essentially undo that bug fix and give miners control again. And I mean it'd be like reintroducing the inflation bug that was fixed not so long ago. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense to do that. At the end of the day, it is a lot less secure. Um, you don't really want to be running as an economic actor, so you you would logically want to run lock and untimeout true. And therefore, a lot of economic actors are likely to want run it true. Um, in most of the polls I've seen, most of the community seems to want true. <laughs> as far as uh, flag day, that's essentially the same thing as lock and untimeout true, except that it doesn't have the ability for miners to activate it early, so we'd have to wait the whole 18 months for it to activate and it doesn't have any signaling so at the end of the day we don't really know if it activated or if the miners are just not mining stuff that violates taproot um which the difference is whether it's centralized or decentralized verification um at the end of the day it's economic majority still that will matter for the enforcement but you want to be able to say this chain has taproot activated you don't want it to be a question of an opinion yeah i say taproot's activated you say it isn't who's to say which one of us is right <laughs> without a signal on the chain we're both in a limbo where we're both saying the same thing about the same chain and there's no clear answer objective answer to that question is taproot activated I see. And now I know this might be a bit more contentious, but I think there are other developers and other people out there who have made an argument that they think setting lock in on timeout equals true is quote unquote putting a gun to the head of the miners uh, and forcing them to signal in a certain way. What would you say in response to that? I mean, are we putting a gun to the miners and forcing them to not mine transactions stealing Satoshi's coins or whatever? I mean, there's rules and the miners have to follow the rules. They've got a whole year to figure out whatever they need to do to enforce the rules themselves. It's not any different than any other rule. Gotcha. And what would you say? I mean, we don't add. Sorry, go on. Would you add the inflation bug back because we don't want to force the miners not to inflate? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> 
kind of a nonsensical <laughs> argument. Of course, sure. And now what about the argument that, so some people make this argument as well, that each party in the system, if you will, I guess if we loosely thought of it like, okay, you've got developers and you've got miners and you've got users. And if you wanted to sort of think of it like, okay, each of them can propose things, like in some sense, developers can propose and write code and put it up there. And ultimately it's up to people to run that code. And then I guess there's an argument that I've heard as well, that what if you let miners signal it on their own and activate it on their own? I guess perhaps that is one of the arguments around lot equals false. So what are your thoughts on that kind of idea of letting them signal it on their own and then changing um, if, if, you know, if they do not signal, then changing at that point? There's no point to it. Uh, lot true gives them a whole year to signal on their own. And if they do, then there's no difference whatsoever between the two. The only question is, is do they have the ability to refuse to co- collaborate? And if they refuse to collaborate, does that essentially cancel the soft fork? There's no reason to ever do false. If if they collaborate, great, then it works. If they don't collaborate, then it works as well. Okay. And another argument I've heard is, oh, well, another reason to have lot equals false is if, let's say, in this activation period, there is a bug to be found and coordinating the stoppage of the soft fork is easier in a lot equals false scenario than if we were to go with lot equals true as default. What's your thought on that? First of all, the possibility of finding a bug at this stage is very unlikely. There's been years of review on this, or at least during development, there's been review. And then even after it was merged, there's been more review. But at this point, it's just sitting there waiting to be activated. It's not There's not really much more review to be done with it. And the next time we're going to f- see any possible bugs would be after it's activated. And then at that point, you know, it's after all this is relevant, it's activated at that point. And the second point thing thought is, um, second thought was that it doesn't actually make it any easier to cancel it. Sure, you could just not activate it, but if the miners have the trigger, only the miners can not activate it. So you, as if someone, an economic user running a full node, at the end of the day, you want to change to different software. You don't want to allow the miners to activate it. And finally, even in the best case scenario there, you would still have to update again because you're going to want to activate Taproot at the end of the day with, with that bug fix. It really doesn't, there's nothing to gain in that regard. I see. Yep. Uh, now, there is a bit more of a, let's say this is more like a meta or a long-term argument, but this argument that if it is seen like the developers are unilaterally able to put out this code and everyone just adopts it, is there potentially an argument that in the future, let's say, maybe a large government or a large business could try to bring pressure to bear onto developers in the future to try and co-opt or change the protocol or do you know somehow sabotage the protocol? Do you see a potential risk in that angle or on that side? No, no not really. The developers... They... No matter what we release, at the end of the day, if the users won't run it, then it doesn't have any effect. I see, yeah. So I guess the argument then would be maybe something like if there were something... And again, if users just if the users just blindly run whatever developers release, that is another failure scenario for Bitcoin. 
Um, that's something that's a problem no matter what we do with the legitimate soft forks. Of course, yeah. And I guess in practice, though, not everybody is a software developer, right? And uh, not everyone is. And even for the people who are software developers, they may not be familiar with the Bitcoin core code base. And I guess it's a, it's a sliding scale, right? There'll be some who are loosely familiar and then others like yourself who are much more closely familiar with the code base. And I guess to some extent, people are, there's some level of trust placed into people who are maybe a little bit closer to the detail. Uh, And so I guess the argument then is something like, well, the reality is not everybody, basically not everybody can review the code, right? Right. But we can, uh, we can provide honest explanations and release notes of what this code does. And at the end of the day, no matter what we do with the legitimate soft forks, it does not change what a malicious soft fork or or 51% attack rather can attempt to do. If developers are going to put out malicious code, it doesn't matter what we do with Taproot. The malicious code is going to be malicious no matter what. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so nevertheless, either way, we are reliant on basically somebody. And because there's enough, you know, there's enough eyes on the code, so to speak, there's enough people reviewing it, that if there were, hopefully, if there were some malicious code to be inserted, that somebody could raise a flag and let everybody know, and then there'd be a warning about it, and people would like kick up a stink about it, basically. You would hope so. Um, but regardless, what we do with legitimate software has no influence on that scenario. I see. Yeah. So I guess the other argument I have heard now is like, so this discussion about if Bitcoin Core were to release, let's say, uh, a client with lot equals false, and then the, the argument that, you know, the, another contingent of developers and users who want to go out and do similar to the UASF and release an alternate client with lot equals true. And so one argument I've heard and seen is this argument that, look, the average user can't review all the Bitcoin code and they would now have to decide whether they want to run this alternate client that does include lot equals true. So what's your thought on that aspect? I mean, that's no riskier than running the one with lot equals false, except lot equals false actually, for other reasons, doesn't come to a coherent view of consensus. It will not uh, it will not be very useful to people who are on the false client. So for that reason, I think core releasing lot equals false would actually be uh, abdication of the duties toward the users. Um, obviously, Bitcoin Core is provided, you know, as is anyway, but there's this expectation that it's going to follow what the users want and be, you know, safe to use. Um, and lot equals false simply is not safe to use. Greetings, Stefan Levera fans. This is Dread here, and I have some big news to share. Swan Bitcoin's new private client services division is open for business. So last August, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor kicked off the trend of companies buying Bitcoin for their balance sheets. A flood of high-profile investors and companies have joined him. Names like Paul Tudor Jones, BlackRock, Square, and Tesla. Swan Private exists to meet the massive international demand from thousands of companies, family offices, and high net worth investors from all around the globe. If you're thinking of buying between 100,000 and 100 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin over the next year, visit swanbitcoin.com slash private. That's swanbitcoin.com slash private. Fill out the onboarding form or email the CEO personally, corey at swanbitcoin.com. That's C-O-R-Y at swanbitcoin.com. Respect fans. 
on one love. Are you thinking about your Bitcoin backups and recovery? CypherSafe.io are producing metal backup seeds like the Cypher Wheel. They've also got a Bitcoin recovery tag specifically helping with recovery. This is an extra stainless steel tag with information like the original wallet, gap limit, derivation types, scripts used, and there are different hardware wallet types, each with their own recovery tag type that you can get. So you attach this to your seed word backup with a stainless steel cable included. This also includes a link to a website for recovery to help you or your heirs recovering those coins on Electrum. So it adds value of helping you or your heirs recover in practice. Bitcoin recovery tag works with any seed word backup device, including the Cypher wheel, obviously, uh, and the various other products out on the market. Go and buy yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code Levera for a discount. And finally, Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. So they provide multi-sig vaults for ultra-secure long-term storage with no setup or storage fees if you build it on your own. That means you can buy two hardware wallets. So for example, you could buy a cold card and a Trezor and take that to the Unchained Capital website and set up your own vault. Now, if you need help, if you want the white glove treatment, they offer a vault concierge onboarding service where they will ship you the hardware wallets. They'll answer your questions. They'll do a call with you. They will deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault and they'll get you set up and you can use the code Lavera for a discount there. Unchained Capital are great if you are a business as well looking to use advanced business accounts. Unchained Capital offer this as a feature and a service for you. They also offer an OTC desk. So go to unchained-capital.com. Back to the show. And also, there's also the discussion around Bitcoin Core and the code in Bitcoin Core on dealing with chain splits because as I've seen some of the discussion, people go into points like saying, okay, how would you how would if you know if if there were to be a chain split at that time, uh you Bitcoin Core would have to deal with having like the peer-to-peer ramifications of finding other peers who are on the same chain you're you are on and stuff like that. Could you outline any thoughts on that aspect of it? Or I guess that's also why, in your view, lot equals true is the way to proceed with this? Well, yeah, I mean, there's uh, that lot equals true minimizes any risk of chain splits. That only happens if the miners are malicious at that point. Um, But if they are, which they could be, again, they could be malicious tomorrow and cause problems. But in any case, the Bitcoin Core can definitely improve on its handling of such minor attacks, but it's not really related to Taproot or locking on timeout or any of that. It's a general issue that could be improved, but doesn't really have to be. There's no reason to link it to locking on timeout or any of this. Gotcha. Um, and in terms of the minor signaling uh, ratio or percentage, right? So the current uh, percentage or threshold, right? probably threshold is the correct term. 95% is uh, the current threshold that I understand. What's your thought on that level? And what sort of scenarios could happen if the hash power were to be more, I guess, evenly split, and it wasn't just like a one or two blocks kind of thing um, before everyone figures out, okay, this is the correct chain, and this is what we're going with? <coughs> well, I mean, Segwit had 95%, but that was also, you know, that one failed. Um, the current consensus for Taproot seems to be around 90%. Um, as long as you're relying on miners to protect the nodes that haven't upgraded yet, you probably don't want it to be much lower. I, you know, I would say 85% at, at least. <laughs> 
But once you get to the, uh, after the year is over and we're activating regardless of the miners, at that point, hopefully the whole economy has upgraded and we aren't relying on the miners anymore because that could be kind of messy. So at that point, the hash rate doesn't matter quite so much. I see. As long as it's, you know, as long as there's enough blocks to use it. Yeah. Uh, maybe let me just take a step here just to summarize that for listeners who are maybe if you're a little bit newer, you're trying to follow the discussion. So the point I think you're making there is that miners are in some sense helping enforce the rules for the older nodes. So basically, because the older nodes aren't validating the full set of rules uh, because of the way Bitcoin works, the idea is it's like old nodes still have forward compatibility. And so the old nodes could theoretically be put onto the wrong chain. But the idea is old nodes are essentially become light wallets at that point. To get a better view of the timeline overall, before any signaling, before the miners even have the opportunity to activate, you really want the majority of the economy, the economic majority, to have upgraded by that point. So that when the miners activate, the enforcement of the rules also agrees. And is so you have the majority of the economy enforcing the rules at, no matter when the miners activate at that point. For the next year, the miners are by not... They're, they're enforcing the rules on the mining side. So if someone were to make an invalid block, the longest chain would still enforce the taproot rules. And that by doing that, they protect the, uh, the, the nodes that have not upgraded at the light wallets and such. After that year is gotcha. over, that's why you would hope at that point that the entire economy, you know, maybe plus minus one or two small actors has upgraded and is enforcing the rules. So regardless of what the miners do at that point, the rules are still being enforced and nobody is, you know, at that point, if you lose money because you haven't updated your phone, though, that's kind of on you at that point. <laughs> You've had plenty of time. You've had a whole year to get ready. Yeah. And so the idea then is, let's say uh, if somebody had not upgraded at that point, there basically wouldn't be enough hash power uh, actually pointed at that incorrect chain such that people would be kept to the correct chain even if they are even if they are on an old node because of the rule about the most work right well after the full year then you're no longer relying on that assumption yes yes the miners if they were to produce an invalid block then everyone's expected to use their own full node to, to reject that block no matter how much work that chain has gotcha yep yep um, and so now probably a good point to bring up the speedy trial idea. So just for anyone who's not familiar with that, could you just uh, outline uh, what that is and also what your views are on that? Sure. Uh, speedy trial is essentially a new idea where signaling starts basically immediately and pretty quickly, three months away from when it starts. But the if at any point during that three months, the miners signal 90% or whatever the threshold ends up being, then three months after that, so a total of six months into the future, at that point, Taproot is considered active. And so this gives us the six months window where no, the economic majority has an opportunity to upgrade. And because of the short window, it doesn't conflict with the, so to, so to speak, real plan, the hopefully LOT equals true. Um, they don't overlap with signaling. And if speedy trial activates sooner, great. It, we don't even have to go with the regular one. <laughs> it's just active in six months. If it doesn't work, that's okay too. We just go forward as if it had never been tried. Gotcha. Uh, so I, I presume then you're also in favor of speedy trial then in that case, and you're um, you know, encouraging other people to go with that approach? I think it's still important that we move forward with the lock and untimeout 
true. Um, a, sp a speedy trial manages to preempt it. That's okay too. It, it's not really an alternative as much as of a cooperative, you know, another way that the miners could activate before the deadline. I see. And while we're here as well, it might be a good point to talk about BIP 8. And um, as I understand, I think there are some parts about it that you would prefer to change if you were to be writing it today. Could you outline that? Well, in light of locking on timeout false being unsafe and <laughs> it really doesn't have a purpose, if, if it were solely up to me, I would just remove the parameter and just make it always true effectively. Um, I don't think it would be right for me to just make that change unilaterally when there's still disagreement about that. But if it were up to me, <laughs> I don't yeah. think that there's any purpose in having a parameter in there. It should just always be true at this point. There's no point. I see. Yeah, just because of the way it's evolved by now. Yeah, there's no point adding a bug back in <laughs> once we've fixed it. <laughs> I see. Yeah. So I guess if you, in your view, if you had to think about what is the most likely outcome at this point, what do you, what do you think that would be? Considering all the minor support for Taproot, I'm guessing that speedy trial might succeed. Um, but like I said, if it doesn't, that's fine. Um, if people have to switch to a so-called Bitcoin core with Taproot added, that's okay. It might actually be better than if Bitcoin Core were to release it in the mainline release, because then it's the users even more explicitly acting. Um, I think it really should have been released by now with the timeline that had been proposed by the meetings a month ago. But I'm not about to go go do it myself. If there isn't enough community support to actually get it done, then you know, just one developer isn't. It's it's flawed and it's not going to succeed in the first place. So I do think i mean i'm happy to help the community of course if they want to move forward with this but i do think it should happen sooner rather than later you don't want to wait till after speedy trial and then realize oh we should have done this three months ago mm -hmm. yeah and uh, you might have seen uh, i believe it was suhas uh, suhas who wrote a blog post and i think his focus uh, suhas from chain code labs for people who are not familiar uh and i believe his overall guiding thrust as he was saying look the important thing is to keep the network consensus uh, i'm not sure if you have any views on that or if you've had a chance to read that blog post didn't read the whole thing i did skim through it um i agree that keeping the network consensus is probably a very high priority if not the highest i think lot true does that <laughs> okay yeah okay so i guess um those are probably the key points i think like at least from my reading of the community discussion, I'm sure people out there, if I missed any few que any questions, let me know. Um, Luke, did you have any other points around uh, the taproot activation conversation that you wanted to make? Yeah, I did think um, it was important to point out that the miners aren't going to be caught by surprise um, with the requirement for signal. That if they haven't signaled for a whole year, they've had that whole year also to prepare for the inevitable need to signal. For, to make valid blocks so they if they have you know outlier node somewhere not even a node because they change the signal on their own but if they have an outlier server somewhere that is setting the wrong version they've had a whole year to work out that problem there's no risk that there's going to be an accidental chain split with lot true um, i noticed there's been a lot of fear being spread about accidental chain splits and all that, but the only way that lot true would have a chain split, which isn't really lot true, but the only way chain split would occur at that time is if miners are maliciously intentionally creating invalid blocks. 
there's no risk of an accidental. I see. Yeah. And so I guess in your view, so I guess if I had to summarize your view, then it's essentially we should be pursuing the lot equals true approach uh, because that, as you've said, maximally reduces the risk of these splits. And given that basically there's been no serious sustained objections to taproot, that's just the way to proceed. Yeah, I mean, we can go ahead with speedy trial, too. That doesn't hurt. Um, but I do think we should be doing both in parallel in case that doesn't succeed. Gotcha. Okay. Um, also, while we've got you here, Luke, I thought it would be interesting as well just to hear more about your views around the whole small block approach. Uh, and I know this is one of those things where you have been, uh, I guess, campaigning for this and uh, agitating for this idea of smaller blocks in Bitcoin. Can you outline some of your thoughts on this and why is that an important thing to pursue? Well, earlier you mentioned uh, users who just want to use a smartphone. That, that's pretty much impractical these days because the full node, you have to download and process 350 gigabytes of blockchain size, and that's just way too much for a smartphone. Um, so that ship has pretty much sailed. Um, what would, would reducing block size now get us? It would hopefully accelerate the return to the blockchain being manageable as smartphones get better. Right now, the blockchain is still growing faster than the smartphone or any technology improves. So it's actually getting harder and harder for phones or computers to keep up with it. So reducing the block size would get us to the point where the technology improvements, hopefully, if they keep pace, will finally catch up to and maybe someday smartphones will again be usable for a full node um, the best we can hope for in the meantime is you know people run a full node at home and they remotely access it from their phone yeah so in that case uh what about the idea of using pruned nodes on the smartphone and things like that is that a possibility in your mind or do you think that even that ship has already sailed that ship's already sailed. That's, <laughs> I, I was kind of assuming that in the first place, because um, even with the prune node, you still have to download and process all 350 gigabytes of data. It's just, you know, that's what it requires to be a full node, even if you prune it. Yeah. And there are also the battery uh, and internet uh, considerations as well, because people are walking around with a smartphone, they might not want to take that kind of battery loss. Yeah, and when the CPU is pegged, it's going to get hot, and that also destroys the phone usually if it's running too hot for too long. So I wonder then whether smartphone use might not have been feasible, even if you know, even if it had stayed at 350 kilobytes, just because of the battery and the CPU aspects. No, no, because then that would mean the technology would continue to improve while the blockchain grows slower than the improvement. So you would have it would remain viable if it had been reduced in a reasonably timely manner it may have actually needed to have been before segwit <laughs> but at, so there was a point in time where the reduction would have preserved that use i see yeah. i remember back I in see. uh i don't know if it was 2013 2012 i was actually running a full note on my phone with no problem at all <laughs> yeah and what about your thoughts on okay maybe another developer or someone else could come back to you and say well maybe we can just make it easier to remote into your home node right so right now a lot of people can do the whole raspberry pi thing with one of the different package nodes or... that's pretty much the approach i've been looking at lately and working toward i've got a you know i've got the whole pairing thing that i've been not um, so there's a qr code where you can point your phone's wallet to the qr code and scan it and then it will automatically connect to your node on the computer that you're showing the qr code on um, that's 
kind of part of the area I've been trying to focus more on lately is trying to get it so that people can use Bitcoin as easily as they want to, but still have a full node of their own for security. I see. And your thoughts on the compact block filter approach? That's just another light wallet. It doesn't, it's no more secure than the Bloom filters. In fact, I see. So the existence of that feature is harmful because there's no longer a privacy incentive to run your own full node. I see. So in your view, you would rather that not exist and you would rather basically people just all be on their full node at home kind of thing. Yeah. And it's actually less efficient than the Bloom filter protocol. Oh, that's interesting. So wh why is it less efficient? Because now your light wallet has to download the block filters for every block. Whereas with the Bloom filters, you just tell your full node at home, you know, essentially, this is what my wallet, what, what addresses my wallet has. And your full node at home just tells you, okay, these are the blocks you need to worry about and nothing else. I see. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's, there's a privacy trade-off there, but it is less computationally, I don't know, demanding, I guess. There's a privacy trade-off if you're using somebody else's full node. If you're using your own full node, then it doesn't matter. I see. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, I guess longer term, as Bitcoin grows, it eventually will hit a point where not every user will be able to hold their own UTXO, right? So I guess uh, putting context and some numbers on this, right? So, you know, we're, we're speaking in March 2021, the uh, the population of the world is about 7.8 billion. And the current estimates of Bitcoin users around the world, it might be something like 100 to 200 million people. But obviously, even then, not all those people are using it directly on the chain. Some of those are just, you know, custodial users, they've just got their Bitcoin on some exchange somewhere. So let's say, you know, over the next call it five to 10 years, we get a big increase in the number of people using Bitcoin. What happens when they can't all fit it, you know, on the chain? I'm not sure. Hopefully we'll have a comparable increase of developers actually working on solving that. Yeah, yeah. And because I think, as I understand, even if you were to go with Lightning, and obviously I'm a fan of Lightning, I'm a supporter of Lightning, it's even then it might be difficult because by the time you get each person opening or closing channels, then it just it would just completely blow out the capacity in terms of block space. Yeah, I mean, it can do what it can do and what it can't do, then we can try to solve, but maybe we will, maybe we won't come up with a solution. It's hard to tell at this point. Yeah. So I guess the optimistic view, yeah, go on. There's already uh <laughs> there's already plenty of work for developers without having to try to look at <laughs> things like that. Of course. Uh, so I guess the optimistic view would be something like we have some kind of multi-party channel thing going where multiple people can share one UTXO and then people sort of splice in and out of a channel factory or something like that and then that allows people to preserve some more sovereignty in their use of Bitcoin rather than a lot of people having to be custodial users of Bitcoin. I haven't given it much thought, but it's possible that Taproom may actually enable that since it has the, the multi-party Schnorr signatures. Yeah. And I think another approach I've heard of is uh, using like covenants and things, which is I guess, kind of related with what Jeremy Rubin is doing with uh, CTV. Uh, do you have any thoughts around that kind of approach or using covenants? Not sure. I haven't given it much yeah. thought. Like I said, <laughs> you know, there's just so many things going on here and now that I haven't really... Of course, yeah. I mean, it's it's a big... It's a big uh, focus. Yeah, of course. It's a big world out there and there's so many different ideas going around. It's obviously very difficult to kind of maintain with all of that. But I guess maybe that would be another, you know, for some people who maybe they don't want 
small blocks in their minds, they might be thinking, well, let's say we did lower the block size, then, you know, it might make it even harder right now for people who want to, you know, open and close their lightning channels. And it might not be enough uh, in terms of block space. um, Because like, we also have to remember that lightning does rely on us being able to you know, react accordingly. If somebody tries to cheat us or something goes wrong, we still have to be able to get our transaction, our, um, you know, penalty close transaction or justice transaction in the Lightning Labs parlance um, that we still have to get that back into the chain in time. And if the block size was lower at that point, then maybe that's also another uh, consideration there. Well, I haven't looked at the specs, but my understanding is that Lightning does not count the time as long as the blocks are Right, yeah, because I think it's mostly around like relative time locking. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Right. Well, not so much the relative time locking, but just that if while the blocks are full, that it's not counting towards your time limit on the penalty. So you have more time if the blocks are full. I wasn't familiar with, I'm not familiar on this part of how Lightning interacts with Bitcoin. um, So I probably can't comment any further there. I mean, I could be wrong. I, my understanding of Lightning is still mostly based on the theory rather than what has been implemented. Okay, cool. Uh, have, you, have you messed around? Have you used any Lightning stuff yourself or you've mostly just been focused at, at the Bitcoin Core level? Uh, mostly at the Bitcoin Core level. I, I'm not going to say I haven't used it, but pretty much just to the extent of losing a bunch of testnet coins. <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, tried out with any phone wallets on Lightning or no? No. I, I like to understand what is actually happening <laughs> with my bitcoins. Okay, of course, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I guess uh, yeah, it's like uh, good to get a sense of. I have a really high bar of what I'm willing to. <laughs> I, I will not even let it touch my bitcoins if I haven't looked at the code and you know compiled it myself. <laughs> right. Yeah. But what if what if someone just sent you you know like ten bucks on a small lightning wallet or something like that? Um, I've had some people offer to do that. I have, should probably figure out something for that at some point. But <laughs> I haven't taken the time to. I, I I also don't want to use a custodial lightning wallet because that's just when my position. I don't want to set a bad example. Either. Of course, of course. But I mean, you could you could use. If one I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, you could use one of the non-custodial ones. There are some out there. Uh, depending on kind of how much trust or how much you know, uh, self-sovereignty you want. There are different choices out there. I mean, things like Phoenix or Breeze or, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are. I just haven't I see. into it yeah. too much yet. So I guess with the whole small blocks thing, is your hope there that, uh, you know, there might be other people out there in the community who agree and help agitate for that idea? Or are you sort of, you're kind of resigned to like the block size as it is now and the block, uh, you know, weight limit as it is now? I mean, there's only so much I can do. If the community tomorrow decides that, yeah, we're ready to reduce the block size, then sure, we can do it. Um, But until that happens, it's just a matter of, yeah, I think the block size should be lower. And right now there isn't enough support. So there's really nothing more to do. I see. Until other people agree with me. Yeah, and I guess it it may be that, you know, large holders of Bitcoin are the ones who are much more able to, you know, fully be self-sovereign with their own full node holding their own keys and things. And maybe to some extent, the the people with a smaller stack of Bitcoins are to some extent using more custodial services and things. And to some extent, they are more reliant on the protection, if you will. They're the wards of the, uh, of the whole coiners or the large coiners. Well, 
also you have to consider that even if you have a lot of bitcoins if you're not very economically active with those bitcoins you may find yourself at a loss if you're running a full node and other nobody else is is if you're cut out of the economy because other people have accepted an invalid chain <laughs> your bitcoins aren't going to be worth quite as much anymore yeah i see what you're saying so essentially you could be some even if you're a whale sitting on you know over a thousand coins or whatever right and the scenario would be that if a lot of other people out there get tricked into some you know yeah then the economy moves on to another chain that doesn't necessarily recognize your rules <laughs> you're no matter how many bitcoins you have you're still at the mercy of the economic majority and that is essentially putting what puts the price on the bitcoins and the value even if you're not valuing it in dollars it's still you're still the value all comes from the economy Right. So your purchasing power could be impacted. But I guess it also is about if you are running a business, then you're regularly doing transactions. And in that sense, you are helping enforce right. your vision of what the rules of Bitcoin should be out there into the network. And you're helping influence that in some way if you're running as long as you're running a business or you're regularly even if you are regularly accumulating and you're regularly receiving, well, then you are helping enforce in that sense. Yes, to a limited extent. Obviously, it would be very bad if there was a <laughs> A handful of people that made up the whole economic majority, but yeah, I see. Okay, yeah, well, uh, it's very been a very interesting discussion, Luke. Uh, I wonder if you've got any kind of closing thoughts that you want to leave for the listeners. I guess if you are interested in working on the Bitcoin Core with Taproot or getting Taproot activated, join the uh, IRC channels. I can, if you if you're not necessarily if you're not comfortable with your skill in doing it, I can certainly help teach. Great. And uh, Luke, for any listeners who want to find you online or they'd like to get in contact with you or maybe they want to follow your work, where's the best place for them to find you? Um, if they just want to follow my work or ask me questions in general, uh, probably best way these days is probably Mastodon or Twitter. Um, my handle is Luke Dasher and then on Mastodon, that's at BitcoinHackers.org. If you have if you have a reason to reach out privately, like there's some privacy sensitive information, you can always email me directly. It's just Luke at Dasher.org for my email. Excellent. Well, uh, Luke, I enjoyed chatting with you and uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you found that educational and an interesting perspective there from Luke. Also, for those of you who need to see some other relevant episodes you can see episode 257 with matt corallo episode 137 with aj towns where we spoke about schnorr taproot tapped script and also episode 200 with christian decker where we spoke about any prev out get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 260 for this episode and make sure you're subscribed and left a review uh, so that other new people can find my show also thanks guys and i'll see you in the citadels <laughs>